I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the book of Isaiah. Our text is Isaiah 29. God has declared his purposes to us in his word through his prophets. Some of those purposes have already been fulfilled, some we are experiencing, and some are for the future. The purposes fulfilled are our past heritage. We look back to Adam and Eve, to Abraham and Sarah, to Moses, to David. We look back every time we take the Lord's Supper to that most important of all fulfilled promises, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We look back to Pentecost, to the birth of the church, and to the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth through history down to our days. That's past. God's present work is where we find ourselves participating in the story. This is our time. This is our moment to see God at work in us, in our local church, in our society, in the global Christian community. This is the present. Many of God's purposes are not yet fulfilled. Jesus Christ does reign in heaven, but spiritual and human powers of evil have not yet been abolished on earth. Jesus has not yet come back. We still groan longing for the glorification of our bodies, longing for our new home. The new heavens and new earth are still our future hope. Experiencing God's word come true in the present strengthens us in our faith as we hope in the fulfillment of God's future promises and to trust that those promises will be fulfilled at the right time according to his sovereign plan. Isaiah points out that truth to the people of Israel in chapters 28 to 37. He reminds them of God's deliverance from the Assyrians who had surrounded Jerusalem. This was part of their present. He exhorts them to remember how they struggled to trust God for that deliverance and to remember how God kept his word in spite of their weakness, the word that he had communicated through Isaiah. This large section makes the point, just as God fulfilled his word in our present circumstances, you better believe that he will bring about the future that he has described in the previous section. The Universal Kingdom, chapters 13 to 27, gave to Judah all kinds of promises that were yet to be fulfilled. It's all in the future that future vision of the mighty empire Assyria coming to an end and the great city of Babylon becoming a deserted wasteland, and that further future vision of the city of man being overthrown and the city of God being established on earth where God's glory will shine brighter than the sun and where the superpower oppressors of God's people will come to share in the inheritance of Israel. All of those far-off realities will be realized. And yet the people hearing this prophecy could ask, how do we know, Isaiah? How do we trust your vision of these future events? Well, what if Isaiah were to tell you that Assyria would surround Jerusalem only to be stricken down by the hand of God? If you saw that, would you believe? Or what if I were to tell you that Assyria as an empire is only going to last another 70, 80 years tops? If you saw that happen in your lifetime, would you be prepared to believe the word given to you for the future? Let me give you an example. This is from more recent history in the past hundred years or so. In the, early 20, in the early 20th century, not a lot of Christians believed that any predictions concerning Israel were meant to be interpreted literally. So they read that in their Bible and they think there must be a symbolic or spiritual meaning 
or this must be about the church. It can't be about Israel, the people or Israel, the nation, because there was no Israel. There was only a small Jewish presence in the promised land. Jews had not ruled in Jerusalem since the Roman destruction of the city and the temple in 70 AD. In fact, this was not the first time Jerusalem and her temple were destroyed and the people removed from the land. The first time happened in 600 BC with the conquest of Babylon. About 70 years later, the Jews were back. The temple and the walls were rebuilt. And that was incredible. Who's ever heard of a people being totally removed from their, their land and then coming back and reestablishing themselves. But it was only 70 years. So it it's happened, and maybe it was in the realm of possibility. But this second exile, the Jews, the Jews being gone again, has lasted so much longer, almost 2,000 years. Romans ruled, and Muslims ruled, and then a brief period of crusaders, and then back to Muslims and the Ottoman Empire up until World War I, when the British finally took over. There is no Jewish government. There is no Israel. In the modern era, nobody thought Israel would ever exist again. So Christian theologians just assumed that it was going to be fulfillment through the church or that it's all, it's metaphoric, it's symbolic. Well, then the unthinkable happened. The Jews came back. A nation state was formed in ancient lands. The Hebrew language was resurrected. They were not just Jews living in the land, but a government, an actual geopolitical Israel. And so we could ask those same theologians, now what do you think about the possibility of some of those end times prophecies applying literally to the people of Israel and the city of Jerusalem? Well, a lot of Christian theologians since 1948 have started to say, you know what, maybe some of these things are meant to be taken literally. I'm not making a case right now for anything in particular. We still have to do careful Bible study. As we see through studying Isaiah, some things are meant to be literal and some things are meant to be metaphorical. And we address the the literature, whichever genre we're looking at, with skill and with wisdom, and we faithfully handle the Bible. But we certainly don't discount literal fulfillment. Uh, Think about all the prophecies of Jesus. Hundreds of years before his appearance, the Messiah really did come as a man. He really was pierced. He really was betrayed. He really was sold for gold. He really was born in Bethlehem, and he really did grow up in Nazareth. The prophecies literally came true. Remembering some of the amazing things that God has done in history helps strengthen our faith in his word, particularly when that word applies to major political events or even unthinkable events. However likely or impossible something sounds, it's not impossible for God. God's word is true. Build your house on this rock. Isaiah challenged Hezekiah and his fellow countrymen to trust God in his word as they set policy for the nation. Israel and Judah were caught in the middle of two major superpowers. As Egypt in the south and Assyria in the north fought over the territory in between, which included Israel and Judah. By the time the book of Isaiah was written, this story in chapters 28 to 37 has already happened. Hezekiah has already faced the invading Assyrian army. The story is a reminder. You remember what happened in our own present, in our own day. We were afraid. We made bad decisions. But then Hezekiah trusted God, and good thing he did, because we saw Yahweh to truly be the Lord of history, the Lord over the nations, the Lord who acts when he's ready to act. 
And if what God said about Assyria was true, you better believe that what he says about Babylon later will also come true. And if what he says about Babylon later comes true, you better believe that what he says about future events will come true. The coming of a Messiah who will die, that's going to come true. And even further than that, the coming of a Messiah who's going to reign and establish a new heaven and new earth, that's going to come true. Even if Israel were to be wiped off the map completely, God is able to bring them back. He is the Lord of history. Take strength in the unbreakableness of his word. That's the section we have entered into now last week with chapter 28. God is the Lord of history. Isaiah is going to remind us of that by retelling the story of Hezekiah and his government as they try to make policy for the nation. The whole section of chapters 28 to 37 is organized as six woes and a conclusion. We considered the first woe in our last lesson. We'll consider the next two woes in this lesson. Motir sees in the six woes a kind of parallel pattern where the first three woes present principles and the second three woes show those principles at work in the events leading up to the surrounding of Jerusalem by Assyria. We'll consider the second and third woe in this lesson. Both are in chapter 29. We'll also consider the principle that Motier sees suggested by each woe. Chapter 28 gave us the first woe and the first of Motier's principles. Each principle follows the structure of the woe. Here's Motier's principle from the first woe. When God's people reject his word, remember how priest and prophet mocked Isaiah's call to faith as fit only for the nursery. That was in 28, 9 to 13. When God's people reject his word and covenant, Remember, they called it a covenant of death. Destruction follows. Remember the hailstorm held within divine purposes. Remember the examples of sowing and reaping. The farmer does violence to the earth to bring about a crop. So let me say that again uh, without interjecting. Here's that principle, the principle of the first woe. When God's people reject his word and covenant, destruction follows held within divine purposes. Okay, that's the first one. We'll get the second and third principles after we consider the text of each woe. So here we go, the second woe. The second woe begins with this verse. Woe, O Ariel, Ariel, the city where David once camped. Ariel is identified in that second verset as the city of David. But why Ariel? Jerusalem has many names, but up to this point in history, Ariel has not been one of those names. All the Bibles I have, English and Croatian, simply transliterate the Hebrew, as Ariel. But what does it mean? Does, does Ariel have a meaning? There are two main options. Ari is the Hebrew word used in Genesis 49.9 as part of the prophecy describing the tribe of Judah, David's tribe. There, Ari is lion. El means God. So Ariel means lion of God. Robert Alter prefers this meaning. The second option recognizes that the word here is spelled the same as the word used in Ezekiel 43.15 for altar hearth, or literally, hearth of El. The Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon defines this word as the top, mostly flat, fire-holding area of an altar. Motier and Oswald both prefer this meaning. I lean towards the altar hearth translation because of a point Oswald makes. The concept, Lion of God, doesn't seem to have any relationship to the rest of the text, but altar hearth does. We're going to be talking about traditional outward religion through chapter 29, 
So the idea of an altar hearth connects to the mention of feasts in verse 1, to consuming fire in verse 6, and to religious lip service in verse 13. The full second woe occurs in 29.1 to 14. It can be divided into four subsections, disaster and deliverance, then blindness and illumination. Our principle from the first woe recognizes that even though God's judgment brings destruction, that destruction is part of a wider plan for God's people. This woe indicates that part of God's plan after judgment is transformation. We begin, though, with disaster. Isaiah 29, 1-4. through 4. Woe, O Ariel, Ariel, the city where David once camped. Add year to year. Observe your feasts on schedule. I will bring distress to Ariel, and she will be a city of lamenting and mourning, and she will be like an Ariel to me. I will camp against you, encircling you, and I will set siege works against you, and I will raise up battle towers against you. Then you will be brought low. From the earth you will speak, and from the dust, where you are prostrate, your words will come. Your voice will also be like that of a spirit from the ground, and your speech will whisper from the dust. The altar hearth is the place a sacrifice is consumed by fire. Ariel is not the sacrifice. Ariel is the place of sacrifice, the place of judgment and atonement. True worship is offered humbly at the altar. False worship goes through the motions of humility, observing feasts on schedule year after year, but lacking sincere humility. The people of Judah will experience humiliation in defeat. That's the language here. The people of Jerusalem will be brought low. They will lie in the dust. They are not dead. They are humiliated. From the dust where you are prostrate, your words will come and your speech will whisper from the dust. From this point of humiliation, God will bring about deliverance. That's in verses 5 to 8. But the multitude of your enemies will become like fine dust and the multitude of the ruthless ones like the chaff which blows away. And it will happen instantly, suddenly. From the Lord of hosts you will be punished with thunder and earthquake and loud noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a consuming fire. And it will be like a dream, a vision of the night. And the multitude of all the nations who wage war against Ariel, even all who wage war against her and her stronghold, and who distress her, it will be as when a hungry man dreams, And behold, he is eating, but when he awakens, the hunger is not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking, but when he awakens, behold, he is faint, and his thirst is not quenched. Thus the multitude of all the nations will be who wage war against Mount Zion. A great reversal happens between the people of Jerusalem and their enemies. First, the enemies are successful. The citizens of Ariel were pictured face down in the dust. Now their enemies become like fine dust. And it's more than a reversal. Their enemies are not now prostrate. This is like Marvel's Infinity War. The enemy becomes fine dust. And like chaff blows away. And it will happen instantly, suddenly. This prophecy brings to mind the actual events of chapters 36 and 37. The army of Assyria marches into Judah, surrounds Jerusalem, and taunts the defenders. The men of Judah hide in fear behind Jerusalem's walls. They are humiliated. But in an instant, the army of Assyria is gone. The Assyrians had full assurance of victory over Jerusalem. They looked at their numbers, their siege engines, their strength and ability, and they knew that Jerusalem must fall. 
but their assurance turned out to be like a dream in the night. That's what we read in, in verse 8. It's like when a hungry man dreams and behold, he's eating, but when he awakens, his hunger is not satisfied. Or when a thirsty man dreams and behold, he is drinking, when he awakens, behold, he is faint and his thirst is not quenched. They're so sure of their victory. It's, it's like they're eating and they're on their way to be, being satisfied to awaken and to see that their work is empty. God's wrath has two possible results, humiliation or death. God's wrath is always just. The wages of sin is death. God never executes wrath on an innocent human being. There are none. Still, God is extremely patient with those who love him. But to those who rebel and turn to a covenant of death, God will eventually exact just punishment. That punishment may be final. The demand for life of the one punished, no hope of redemption, or that punishment may be conditional, allowing for repentance. God may drop us into a pit so deep that we must give up the illusion of being able to save ourselves and finally, in humility from the dust, cry out to him for salvation. In this section, Judah as a whole community was humiliated. They became prostrate, clearly unable to save themselves. But then God did save. Their enemies experienced a worse punishment of near annihilation. Judah is given a chance to cry out to God. The religious culture of the city had not produced brokenness of heart. There was not true humility and worship. There was rebellion against God. So God made the whole city an altar of sacrifice, upon which he sacrificed both the pride of Jerusalem and the pride of Assyria, so that some would repent, some would believe. And Hezekiah will exemplify humiliation that leads to faith. But that doesn't mean everyone who, who suffers and is given a second chance turns to God in faith. We easily make promises during crisis. Most of us have at least metaphorically found ourselves on a life raft in the middle of an ocean and promised, God, save me and I will live for you. Just do this one thing for me, God. And how quickly the will to fulfill that promise dissipates after the crisis passes. Mostly, we just return to the way things were. Rescue from physical trial and suffering doesn't guarantee spiritual transformation. The second half of this woe shifts from the external disaster and deliverance to internal blindness and a promise of eventual illumination. The description of blindness is in 9 through 12. Be delayed in wait, blind yourselves, and be blind. They become drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets, and he has covered your heads, the seers. The entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book, which when they give it to the one who is literate, saying, please read this, he will say, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book will be given to the one who is illiterate, saying, please read this, and he will say, I cannot read. These verses begin with the imperative, be delayed and wait, blind yourselves and be blind. And now the idea of waiting is often synonymous with faith in the prophets, wait on the Lord. But here, combined with the verb be delayed or be stunned, the sense is one of indecision. They don't know what to do because they're blind. That blindness was at first self-inflicted, a refusal to see reality according to God's word. The punishment for refusing to see is actual blindness. And mom used to say, don't make that face. It might freeze that way. Well, if we squinch up our eyes, refusing to recognize, to see God's light, God's will, 
he may grant that request such that when we open our eyes eventually, they don't work anymore. We find that we are blind to moral and spiritual truth. Our conscience has been seared. We we don't have sensitivity anymore to the things of God. That's what's happened to Judah. It's the language used in the call of Isaiah way back in chapter 6 when God explained to Isaiah his particular mission, rendered the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Isaiah's mission was to preach the word as God revealed it, and so doing, contribute to the blindness of a people intent on turning their eyes away from God's truth. And Isaiah described that reality in the previous chapter when priests and prophets mocked his prophetic words, like the the words of God are just, that's for children, Isaiah. They refuse to see the truth in it. And they are just like here, they're described as staggering like drunkards. In 28.7, Isaiah wrote, they're confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. The drunkenness is a picture of their spiritual state. They're confused in their visions and judgments. There are two words there in 28.7 that may help us to understand here the connection between 29.10 and 29.11. The two words are visions and judgment. The seer sees visions. The prophet delivers judgments. Here Isaiah tells us the prophet's eyes have been shut and the seer's head's covered, you know, maybe like with a cloth over the head so they can't see. This is not a punishment on good, insightful prophets and seers who are trying to understand what's going on according to God's revelation. They are the religious leaders who mocked Isaiah's commitment to reveal truth. Isaiah speaks like a child. They see better. They see practically and realistically. They understand the world of politics and pragmatism. Faith doesn't work here. They squeeze their eyes shut so as not to see, and upon opening their eyes, They find they can't see even if they wanted to. The revelation of truth from Isaiah is like a book sealed. And that may focus on the prophet whose job is to know Torah and apply God's law practically to the people of their generation. But the word is kept from them. This interpretation explanation of the word for this generation is sealed. They can make no clear judgment. The seer sees the truth like in a dream or in a vision, but is illiterate. They can't read the vision, the words they see. They're confused, unable to interpret it. They have nothing to offer in crisis. And so God's people are going to need more than deliverance from Assyria. If they are blind, saving them physically doesn't save them spiritually. They're still going to need a transformation of the heart. Even if God does vanquish the attacking army, they need to see with spiritual eyes. Verses 13 to 14 state the need and that God intends to meet the need. Then the Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. This verse 13 is a conviction of every generation that has grown up in the church. We have to ask, is this true of me? Then the Lord said, because this people draw near with their words. That's easy to do, to honor with lip service. But they remove their hearts far from me. Is my heart 
in line, do I have integrity of worship, where, where what I'm doing outside of me is in line with what's inside of me. Their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. They've, they've memorized how, when to stand, when to sit, how to kneel, what the songs are, how to hold up their hands at the right time. They know how to look spiritual. They know how to, to seem to be praising me. Are they? Commitment to ritual is not the same thing as heart commitment to relationship with God. They have the appearance of reverence, but it's not true reverence. They have the appearance of worship, but it's not true worship. God is not honored by people going through the motions. He is honored by a transformed heart that loves him and loves people. Here, God says he will do something marvelous. The wisdom of their wise men will perish. And that's the religious scoffers who seem so wise, they're going to be shown to be foolishness. Their discerning men were not really discerning after all. And God is going to put an end to this false wisdom. God will bring about a transformation that reveals the falseness of cultural religion. That's the second woe. Let's remind ourselves of the principle of the first woe and then consider the principle suggested here by this text of the second woe. Motier's first principle was this. When God's people reject his word and covenant, destruction follows, held within divine purposes. Now we can add a second principle from this second woe. There is disaster and deliverance, but historical deliverance does not change people spiritually. This needs a further divine action, which is already planned. Our third woe assures us that in spite of human resistance to God's planned good for his people, God will bring transformation to pass. This woe has three parts, the problem, the promise, and the fulfillment. The problem is stated in 15 to 16. Woe to those who deeply burrow from the Lord to hide their plans and whose deeds are done in a dark place, and they say, who sees us or who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me, or what is formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. The leaders of Judah have convinced themselves that they can determine truth on their own. They decide what is right for the nation. They make the plans. Isaiah describes it as a hiding from God rather than a rejection of God. Even when we act as though God doesn't exist, there is a nagging sense in the human heart that he does. It's interesting to me how often modern people use the terminology of purpose and of right and wrong. They say things like the universe wants for us or the universe teaches us, or the universe guides us. We can deny the creator, but we can't help using language as if there is some mind out there controlling things. We can't help believing in right and wrong. Denial of God is a hiding from God, according to Isaiah. Isaiah then uses the image of a potter to communicate the ridiculousness of declaring independence from God, or in suggesting that we know better than God. That's like a ceramic bowl claiming Nobody made me. And furthermore, that he understands clay and ceramics and, and shape and color much better than the creator. This failure of human sight in the realm, particularly of spiritual and moral truth, desperately needs a remedy. God promises transformation in verses 17 to 21. Is it not yet just a little while before Lebanon will be turned into a fertile field and the fertile field will be considered as a forest? On that day, the deaf will hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. 
The afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord, and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless will come to an end, and the scorner will be finished. Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off. Who cause a person to be indicted by a word, and ensnare him who adjudicates at the gate, and defraud the one in the right with meaningless arguments. God does not promise transformation for everyone, the ruthless, the scorner, the one intent on twisting justice. They do not fare well. They come to an end. They are finished. But the land will be transformed into a fertile field and into a dense forest. The deaf will hear. The blind will see. The afflicted will increase in gladness. Not just any gladness, but gladness in the Lord. And the needy of mankind will rejoice with joy in the Holy One of Israel. God is promising spiritual sight and relationship with him. And that will lead to positive social change for the needy and afflicted. Our final section connects this promise to the one made long ago to Abraham. This is fulfillment, verses 22 to 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now turn pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who err in mind will know the truth and those who criticize will accept instruction. Jacob has reason to be ashamed of these offspring. They rejected God's revealed word. They rejected relationship with their creator. They twist the law. They pervert justice. But God is going to bring about a transformation in this people so that Jacob will not be ashamed. His face will not turn pale. When he looks at his children, the people of Judah, he will see that they sanctify God's name. They will regard God's name as holy. They will treat God as he ought to be treated. He is the Holy One. We don't make God the Holy One. He is the Holy One. The question is whether or not we will recognize him as he is. God says the people of Judah will. They will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And when they enter back into right relationship with God, they will begin to see moral and spiritual truth rightly. They will regain the ability to reason, to accept correction. Those who err in mind will know the truth, and those who criticize will accept instruction. Motir states a third principle from this third woe. People may think to run the world without God, but he is the sovereign, and his transforming purposes will work out spiritually, morally, and socially, fulfilling what began in Abraham and establishing a truly renewed people. Isaiah is giving the people of Judah an example from their own very recent past of how God shows himself to be the Lord of history. This example strengthens their faith to accept the promises that God has communicated regarding future plans for Judah and for humanity. In giving this example, Isaiah doesn't just give us the narrative. He doesn't just tell us the story about these counselors and the, the covenant with Egypt and Assyria and Hezekiah. He provides principles, and then he gives us examples of how those principles have worked out in this specific situation. The principles have come in these first three woes, the practical examples are going to come in the next three woes. That's what we're moving to in our next lesson. Let's end this lesson by summing up 
the three principles from chapter 28 and 29. Isaiah 28, 1 to 29, the first woe, when God's people reject his word and covenant, destruction follows, held within divine purposes. Isaiah 29, 1 to 14, the second woe, there is disaster and deliverance, but historical deliverance does not change people spiritually. This needs a further divine action, which is already planned. And Isaiah 29, 15 to 24, the third woe, people may think to run the world without God, but he is the sovereign and his transforming purposes will work out spiritually, morally, and socially, fulfilling what began in Abraham and establishing a truly renewed people. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like the overview chart or other resources that go with our study of Isaiah, then check out our resource page at observetheword.com. You can also find there our previous series on the Book of Romans, the Pentateuch, the Gospel of John, and the Book of Acts.